1: Welcome to the daily briefing. It is Thursday, June 24th. Today, US President Joe Biden announced progress on a
2: infrastructure deal, but the bond market barely budged. And the S&P and Nasdaq hit all-time highs, but could deflation be lurking? That's what one RV favorite says.
1: And also, very shortly, the US Federal Reserve will announce results of its bank stress tests. All eyes are on this report. Will it pave the way for record buybacks?
2: And Tesla up nearly 10% in two days. Could this be a sign of reversal in sector rotation? So much to talk about, uh, Samuel. Thanks for this. We are joined by our very
1: own Ash Bennington. Uh, Ash, let's start out and focus on the infrastructure plan. Um, yeah. Biden announced that a deal is made. But when you get into the, the details, you know this, there's no, nowhere near as much sticker shock. As there was with the one point uh, nine uh, trillion plan, is there?
3: Well, details are a little fuzzy. I think across the board, uh, you know, obviously we live in a time of great partisan rancor, uh, and the question right now is how is this infrastructure bill going to get paid for? Uh, that's a non-trivial question. Uh, President Biden, uh, who obviously spent a great deal of time in the Senate, uh, believes he's got the votes. We'll see.
1: Absolutely, I should Very add. President Biden believes that he should pay for it, which is a key distinction. He is not of the modern monetary theory MMT school. He believes it should be paid for by either by raising taxes or cutting spending elsewhere. Um, so, yeah. Ed so Ed Harrison
3: ar- point, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not a, a $1.9 trillion that was originally thought to be the infrastructure plan. Now it's announced it's $579 uh, billion. Samuel, can you break this down for us?
2: Well, I think what's interesting here is that for a while, the Republicans had floated a gas tax, which would have been political suicide maybe for the Republicans, but definitely for Joe Biden. You don't want to be in the White House and overseeing a gas tax if you want to stay in the goodwill of the people of the United States. But what really stood out to me was one number here, and that's the fact that even though we don't have all the details of the plan the way that Ash was signaling there, is that still people believe, it's estimated, that this will only be a 0.1% boost to GDP each year, and it would have to be very concentrated for there to be a big hit in the positive sense, a positive hit uh, to the economy. It'd be very, very concentrated. But in reality, it looks like this is a multi-year plan. So in my estimation, when I look at these factors and the way that the market reacted, it looks like this was all pretty much built in, and you can't expect uh, too much difference going into tomorrow, the next day, as a result of this. Except
3: yeah, just we saw. It- Construction, sorry, no, I'm sorry, I, except we saw construction stocks uh, rising pretty dramatically. Cat looks like it's up about uh, two and a half caterpillar. Uh, looks like it's up about two and a half percent on the day. Um, this is you know this is a low beta stock. typically uh, the the five year trailing beta on this is less than one, zero spot nine two. So we're seeing some surge in construction stocks uh, as a consequence, yeah,
1: Vulcan materials too, and another uh, favorite of the, in the materials sector up, I think something' like three point three percent. Ash and Samuel, I'm just going to read a few details that were reported. Uh, Three hundred twelve billion will go into transportation, one hundred and nine into roads, bridges, and major projects, and sixty-six billion in freight uh, rail and forty-nine in public transit. Only fifteen billion dollars will go towards electric vehicle infrastructure, electric bus- uh, uh, buses, and the sort. And Samuel and Ash, you know, I've been doing a fair number of interviews with people in the commodity sector, whether it's lithium or copper. Or rare earths for that matter. And the narrative over the past almost a year has been that this infrastructure bill is coming. We are going to, you know, electrify the entire grid. Everything is going to, you know, the government is going to pay for the electrification of, of everything. And that is going to require so much copper, so much lithium, so much neodymium, praseodymium that it's going to blow your mind. So therefore, this commodity is, is something that's really good to invest in. Do you think that this um stimulus bill with only $15 billion going towards electric vehicles. Do you think that kind of misses the mark for this um, commodity supercycle narrative?
2: Well, Ash, I'll jump in just quickly. I mean, this is the thing is that so much of what they wanted to be in the bill isn't going to be there at the end of the day because they had to compromise. I mean, what I'm thinking about more than than just those commodities is the fact that so much of this was supposed to go to really city and different municipality bailouts. And it doesn't look like that's going to be there at the end of the day, or at least in not a big enough scale that it's going to push uh, the overall market up. So that's one thing that really stands out to me, Ash.
3: Yeah. you know, To be honest, I think you're you're spot on, Samuel. It's very early. We don't actually know what the bill is going to contain yet. Uh, other than the market signaling a rise uh, in construction stocks, I think I'm probably keeping a fairly open mind until we get the final text of the bill.
1: So is the bond market, apparently, with the 30-year edging down maybe four basis points from 2.13 to 2.09, and the 10-year basically staying in a range today, remaining in 1.49, 1.48. So, you know, you think when this massive plan would be announced, and again, it's not that massive, um, you would have you yield surging because all this, uh, so many bonds would have to be issued to pay for these programs. But bonds barely budged. So, Ash, what does that mean to you? Is it, does it mean that? Was the market already pricing this in, or do they not believe that the infrastructure is, is going to pass?
3: Yeah, I was just going to say, we had this conversation off camera when we were chatting about it. Uh, it's just, it seems like it's one or the other, uh, or it's just too early to move the markets to our earlier point. So I guess it's one of those three. Uh, priced in, don't believe it, or too soon to say.
2: Well, I have to say, I think it's going to pass. You don't see somebody out uh, flanked by senators from two different parties I saw my local state senator, Kirsten Sinema, who's not always on Biden's side. You could argue she's the second most conservative member of the Democrat senators, and also Mitt Romney. So I think it's safe to say that it's going to pass. And so really, I think the market had factored in much of this. Like you said, so many people had been telling you, this is going to pass. This is going to pass, Jack. It's just a matter of what exactly is going to be a part of it when it does pass.
3: That's d- a just the exact. While bond yields so- remained... Oh, Ash, you had a point? No, I'm sorry. I was going to. I was going to ask this question. Does the exact constituents of the bill, meaning what the specific funding is, what the levels are, and how it's going to be paid for, it, and this is an open question. I don't know. I'm curious if you guys have some thoughts. Is that potentially uh, what's preventing? The bond market from moving. In other words, we believe it's going to pass, as you pointed out, Samuel. Uh, pretty well aligned in terms of uh, in terms of having uh, Senator Cinema, Senator Romney on board. Uh, but are we waiting to see how it actually gets structured before the bond and, market moves?
2: And to that point, one idea that especially the Democrats have pushed quite strongly is increasing funding for the IRS to pay for this bill, so that they could audit more people, so that people could be paying. I guess you could say higher taxes or their fair share share of taxes, depending on how you're looking at it. But that would take time as well. You're wondering what's going to fund this in the meantime, whether it is those bonds, because beefing up a government bureaucracy and actually having it be effective, uh, I don't see happening in the short term.
3: Yeah, one of the great cliches, of course, with infrastructure is shovel-ready. And that's usually used in double quotes, because it's very difficult to spin up these programs uh, in a quick and effective fashion
1: definitely. And so we have no resolution from the bond market as of yet, but in the equity market, they edged a lot higher, and the NASDAQ and the S&P
2: 500 continued to make all-time highs. Samuel? Well, I think it was already heading that direction before we got the news later in the day about these stocks. But I think, again, we have to keep on repeating, let's put this all into context where we were at this time last week, my first time on air with you guys. We were seeing all the reaction to the Fed. And now, yesterday, I was saying on the show that it looks like we've come full circle in the market. And then other people saying it looks like uh, Chairman Powell has come full circle in the mark where we think about inflation. So it is interesting to see, especially with the news that we got here in England today, the Bank of England saying that they're not going to be raising interest rates anytime soon. They're certainly looking more dovish than hawkish, and clearly, the market is liking it if you're hitting these all-time highs. It was a good confluence of events.
1: Samuel, I've got a follow-up question for you. Is
2: the Bank of England thinking
1: about raising rates, or are they thinking about thinking about raising rates?
2: Well, it's interesting because they had one member who's a departing member who was saying that they need to start tapering immediately, and they actually, uh, they dissented against the dissenter in a sense. They really pushed him out. No, there's not so much about the talking about the talking about the talking about. Really, they were saying we're sticking to the plan. We still see, as I've been talking about over and over again on the daily briefing, that really Europe, the UK, we have not caught up to the US, and there's still a lot of recovery that needs to be had here. Just an update on my travel plans. You know I've been complaining that even if you're vaccinated, they're not giving you anything in return. Finally, the prime minister of the UK caving to the pressure from the travel industry and his own conservative party and saying if you have two doses of the vaccine, you'll be able to travel. So I think that's, again, pointing for things in the right direction. But Europe is just not where you guys are in the US.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. And but
1: in the US equity markets you know, are a bullion. However, there is some economic data that could hint at some problems beneath the surface, whether it's a slowdown or true deflation, which of course is the Federal Reserve's ultimate fear. Um, Ash, I want to go to you, because I'm just looking at the data today. We had jobless claims uh, came in at 411,000 versus 380,000 that was estimated. So that was a miss, worse than expected. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, continuing claims were slightly better. And then the durable goods order, month over month, expected to be 2.8% month over month change, but it actually came in at a very low 2.3%. What are you making in terms of the economic data? Do you think that this could hint at a little bit of slowdown?
3: You know, it's such an interesting question. And I was actually looking at the durable goods data myself. So here's what, here's what happens. And I actually went through and read the report from the Census Bureau to get a little bit more depth. So, so the range on this was uh, positive 1% to 4%. Consensus was, uh, depending upon which survey you looked at, generally around 2%. Uh, actual that I saw was up 2.3%. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Prior month was down. revised down 0.8%. If you look at the last 13 months, 12 of them were up. Here are the year over year numbers. For May, year over year, we're up 31.7%. Last month, April, which was revised down to 0.8%, the first number down 1.3%, it was up 45.6% percent on a year over year basis. So what does all this mean? What's the context here? What does it actually suggest? Well, I would argue that what it suggests is that it shows uh, a economy uh, that is clearly normalizing from the covid lockdown and it really kind of makes you wonder, are these data points That useful data points like this are very useful when you have a sort of steady state of economic growth or deceleration, and you're measuring data points uh, relatively close. Uh, I just don't know that they're really significant at all, Jack. What do you think?
1: I think that taken by itself, 2.3 undurables versus 2.8, you can't you know weave a deflation narrative out of that data set alone. Uh, I there are some data points that I have seen over the past few days that do give me pause, however, like the uh, US services PMI, which was the biggest uh, uh, miss yeah. uh, in, in about two years. And I, I didn't go to the chart back, but it could have been uh, way bigger th- than that uh, if, if you go back. But in terms of uh, what was expected, like I think that the economy is not slowing down, of course not, but the rate of change of growth is slowing down as uh, you know, yeah. more people are going back to work. More people have work. More people have already bought the sort of things that they need. Yeah. And I think uh, you know, you're seeing some ominous rotations in the equity markets, where yeah. uh, the the Fang stocks and the tech stocks are resurging. And of course, growth stocks do well when the economy is not growing. And energy stocks, industrial stocks do do well when the economy is growing. So you fact that fact that you have a little bit of a reversal. Um, you know, it makes me think about, could the reflationary period that we have been used to over the past year, could that be giving way to a new regime? Samuel, what do you think?
2: I, I want to drill down a little more on, on the context of what you were saying, Ash. Is the argument that you're making or the point that you're pondering is that because the year-on-year numbers are so stark that it just doesn't give us enough context to really understand these numbers? Because last year was unlike any year that we've seen. And that's the big difference, that you can't do these year-on-year comparisons, so it doesn't give you the footing to really understand them?
3: Well, I think, clearly, the year-over-year comparisons are not especially relevant when you see things up that are nearly 50%. But also, we talk about all of these sort of frictional aspects. Uh, of, of labor markets, for example, uh, supply and demand. You know, it, it's just a bit challenging to understand this because it's not a steady state. So, for example, if you own a factory that produces durable goods, maybe you know you've laid off a tremendous number of workers. We know that two thousand twenty was a brutal year. Here we are now in two thousand twenty one. You're hiring people. You're bringing people back. You're literally cranking up the machines. Putting out more output, is it possible that in the month of May you look and go, well, maybe we overextended a little bit too far, the pendulum swung a little bit too far uh, in the direction of increasing output. Maybe we need to dial it back a little uh, from where we were in April? These things are very hard to measure one of the one of the problems I think with economic data in general, and many critics of the Fed have made this point far more eloquently than I, is that when you look at these numbers and you say, well, Durable goods production was up 2.3% uh, in in May. It provides you with this sort of illusion of false precision. Like we're measuring something very precisely. Like, look, these are aggregate numbers for an entire country. When you talk about these numbers with economists, they look at things like trailing uh, three, you know, trailing averages. Uh, they look at, they look at a blended series. Like it's just very difficult to make these distinctions in the best of times. And when you have this in a period like this, I just don't know how much significance you get from the data set.
2: Especially, Ash, when you look at revised numbers. When I first started right. reporting markets and looking at reports on you know, monthly reports or quarterly reports, and then you just okay. go back one month or one quarter and you see dramatic differences sometimes, it really plays to the narrative that you're laying out here.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Well said. Uh,
2: guys, I want to move on to uh,
1: the bank stress test which have been released um, as of two minutes ago. And First, I want to explain why they are so important. Uh, the, The Federal Reserve obviously regulates banks, but they regulate their capital ratio, how much risk assets they're allowed to hold relative to their safe assets, and how much equity they can hold relative to their debt. And most importantly, at least in this instance, whether or not they can buy back their own stock or uh, you know distribute capital to shareholders, whether by buying back stock, um, or by giving out dividends. Giving out dividends very simple. You just banks or companies give money to their shareholders. When they buy back stock, they buy back uh, more of the stock, removing some from the float, so that current holders actually end up owning uh, more. Interesting today, um, Samuel, I noticed that XLF, or not XLF, but the financial sector part of the S&P 500 was the sector that was up the most, 1.31, perhaps
2: not racing for this news. Not surprising at all. And you gave me time to get the wire here. Federal Reserve gives US banks a thumbs up on all 23 lenders easily passing the 2021 stress test, which is, of course, exactly what we thought, which is, Getting to your point there, of course, people are looking at increased dividends, uh, buybacks. I think the real question is, which institutions then? But one point really stood out to me. Someone was saying, well, yeah, of course, they are going to pass the stress test. We had the biggest stress test we could have imagined this past year. The pandemic was the stress test on these institutions. Mm -hmm. So the real question becomes, are they having to keep too much capital on the books, and is it affecting business and is it affecting uh, the wider economy when they could be doing more so all 23 institutions ash i know you have a lot to say on this matter
3: well you know this is something that i've been thinking about and covering for a long time i think the context is really important here so stress tests are very much a global financial crisis vintage uh, type of, of, of regulatory uh, oversight from uh, from the federal government. So, in addition to the macroprudential uh, components, which are the reserve requirements and the safe asset requirements that that Jack just mentioned, as, as Jack said, this is very much about two things, restrictions on dividends and share buybacks. Now, this is something that, re- if we remember, uh, was a very emotional issue in the wake of the global financial crisis. In fact, in the UK, it went even further with the primary regulator there, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, uh, restricting bonuses and executive pay uh, in the post-pandemic, in the post-crisis era, I should say. Uh, here's a quick fun fact. In 2008, Goldman Sachs reported net income of $2.3 billion. For the same time period, they paid out $4.8 billion in bonuses, more than double their net income. Okay, so here we find ourselves now in 2021. In 2020, we had more emergency regulatory measures come into play. Uh specifically restrictions on buying back shares uh, and paying share dividends. So now, since April, lenders have borrowed more than $40 billion on the public debt markets, presumably to redistribute, as Jack said, uh, to shareholders in the form of dividends and share buybacks. If you look at the prices uh, of major bank stocks, they're just booming right now. JP Morgan is up about 20% on the year. Uh, Goldman Sachs is up uh, nearly 38% year-to-date. Wells Fargo up... 46% year to date there's a pretty And they got
2: that nice boost from the Fed talking about talking that just gave them another push yeah, because of the constituency
3: of their of their lending books. So, And this is all about net interest margins, which is one of the primary ways that banks make money. So now there's a projection in a Reuters story that I read today. I believe it comes from Evercore ISI, uh, which is that Wells Fargo could pay out 167% of its earnings uh, compared to 28% uh, 12 months prior, according to these estimates. Here's why this matters. Here's why it's interesting to me. This is something that has the potential to be tremendously unpopular uh, among Americans and specifically, and this isn't a value judgment, just a description of understanding where we are today, uh, but particularly among the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who has effectively run and campaigned against precisely this sort of thing. It sounds like it's the kind of thing that would be catnip uh, for Senator Warren. So the yeah. question is, is there a headwind coming for banks? From a regulatory perspective, as we might be seeing uh, from tech.
2: Well, and and just to play on that, if you think that would be popular on your side of the pond, imagine over on my side of the pond. And in fact, a lot of the measures that you were referencing from the global financial crisis were actually enacted again, stopping dividends, stopping buybacks last year. Uh, I have to disagree, even though I would generally think that you would be right. I think that Warren and and those folks are now so focused not on the bankers. it's not the, They're not the folks du jour anymore. It is so much more about the ultra, ultra rich, the, the Bezos type of people, the reporting that we've seen from ProPublica uh, about the amount of tax that they pay or don't pay, which I know actually Jack's going to get into a lot. I feel oh. like the current, especially in the progressive wing of the party specifically based on what Senator Warren has said in the past few weeks, I wonder if the banks might be able to go under the radar, because I think that's a little bit harder for the average American to understand, or maybe it's just that it's not in the headline so much. Now that Bezos and Amazon are such a part of our lives, that maybe that that type of populist uh, tax might go uh, might go that direction, the banks might be able to slip by.
3: You know, that really is the question, Samuel. I guess we'll have to see. I would say uh, that tech companies have not been backstopped by the government, which I think is perhaps one of the key drivers of the indignation that we see uh, in the Democratic Party against these kinds of dividend payouts. But we'll have to see. I keep an open mind. But by the way, a perfect segue to talk a little bit more about what's happening in tech. Uh,
2: Samuel, you want to take that on tech? Yeah, well, I I just think here's another important day in tech. I've covered tech for about a decade. And every, I don't know, two weeks, you hear a story about, oh, the government's going to try and regulate tech. Today was another one of those days. So this is something that went through committee. And it's really about what tech companies can do. We're talking about the likes of Google and Amazon advertising their own products on their own platform. So you go to search For a streaming music service, and Google has an ad for their own streaming music service as opposed to Spotify. And that's where a lot of companies, especially folks like Spotify, really think that you get into the overuse of the platform and they're monopolizing the the domination that they really have of their overall platforms. The issue that I see here is that we've been reporting on this every two weeks, even if this is a significant move, even if it comes to pass. The tech uh, giants seem to always be many, many steps ahead. And if you look at the numbers today, for instance, that in spite of something like this passing committee, that you still have the tech stocks, tech stocks surging ahead. Rather, yeah. I, it just seems to me like the government can never catch up to the tech companies.
3: Well, you said it, and I think this this sort of whole array. I think there's six different bills that are going through the House. Uh, It's very interesting. They're definitely getting the lion's share of the heat from Congress, more than the bankers now. I'm sure uh, Mr. Diamond and company are thrilled to hear that. But I'll throw one other thing out here. I just saw today, uh, the breaking story that Google just announced that they're not going to be phasing out third-party cookies this year, as they'd announced. They're supposed to announced this in March. uh, and um, They're apparently not going to be able to do that. More than eighty percent of Google's advertising, 80 percent of I should say Alphabet, the parent company's revenue comes from advertising. We think of these whiz bang engineering companies; they make their money the way that the Ed Sullivan Show did from advertising.
2: And they thought that they could—they were so big that they wouldn't need cookies, which I think is actually a very valid argument. The problem is. The people who pay them are advertisers who depend on those cookies, maybe not necessarily on the Google platform, but for all the other platforms that they work with. And so they're actually getting a pushback from the hand that feeds them, which you never want to bite off. Exactly. Exactly.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: If, if I may enter the conversation, I think that, uh, Samuel, as you alluded to earlier, this story is something that you would encounter. Every month, or maybe every two weeks, if you've been following this, I think that there's always some. Oh, this big regulation is just around the corner. Facebook is they they can't do their business model anymore. And what have we seen over the past five years, maybe more, is that it never really materialized to anything that uh, that, that Google or Facebook or, or Amazon couldn't really deal with. Um, and I think that uh, investors who short. The fang stocks, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Google, and, and the like, they do so at their own peril. I was speaking today to uh, Peter Brandt, a chartist, who was looking at the chart of Apple and of Amazon, and he sees uh, some very bullish things. And I think that uh, those stocks are sort of perfectly um, positioned right now for the murky environment we're in, because if the economy you know reopens and we have a great economy, Google's going to make money, Facebook's going to make money from ads. However, if we enter a deflationary window and we take a little jolt in that direction, then you want to buy. Investors uh, want to pay a premium for secular growers that aren't subject to to the economy. So, um, just just looking at that, the markets. I don't know. I I don't think it's necessarily a, a huge headwind for for these companies, at least for now. The question. But, I agree, Samuel, that um you know these these big megatech platforms. They may be standard oil. Of course, that oil giant that uh was was a. Uh, some people thought a malignant force, and an octopus that uh, was graft grappled around every industry. So it may, be, it may be Standard Oil, but the question is, um, you know, is it 1907? I think when they got broken up, or is it 1897? And you have ten more years of huge secular growth ahead of you.
2: Well, and I would just say that if somebody were going to break these companies up or put some type of really uh, significant um, reform on them that really changed the structure of these companies or how they operate. I would say, look to my side of the pond. Look at people like Margaret Vestager in the EU. I think it would be much more likely. And again, it gets back to the political will that, that Ash was touching on with some of the other stories. I mean, these are giant American companies that are really dominating the market here. I just have an Amazon grocery store opening up with, of course, no checkout agents and that type of pervasiveness of american companies in the european lifestyle i think it would be, make it much more politically palatable to do uh to carry out big regulations so of course we'll be keeping our, our eyes on that on this side but as of the moment nothing to report
1: um so uh, ash i want to get back to you because i understand that uh tesla has been up Something like nine percent over the past two days, of three, three point five percent today, and five percent yesterday. Um, what do you, what do you make of this?
3: Well, you know, this is Tesla's a a volatile stock. Obviously, uh, we could have had this conversation. Tesla's up almost 10% in two days. That's a conversation we could have had uh, a number of times. I guess it remains to be seen uh, whether this is part of the reopening trade. We know there's a lot of uh, tightness uh, in the used car market, in the new car market. People want to jump in new cars and. You know, drive to the beach this summer, go to a national park, do what they want to do. Um, so, it remains to be seen. It's a stock that's volatile. Uh, it's kind of like saying Bitcoin is up 10% in two days, uh, kind of a standard st- state of affairs.
1: Yeah. Um, before we move on, I just want to say back to the banks, which is that I really do think that banks distributing capital back to shareholders could be... Uh, Deflationary or or like bad for the economy and bad for economic growth because if you, if you think of it like banks are levered what 10, 15, 20 to one let's say they're levered twenty to one if they you know pay back in dividends or buybacks a billion dollars that's twenty billion dollars of treasuries mortgage backed securities loans that they can't have on their books so I think that it's it's you know fodder I'm sure Ash for uh, politicians but I think it it really does matter in terms of economic growth I actually think that um, on June thirtieth so today, June 24th, the Federal Reserve announced their stress test. But the Federal Reserve announces their official uh, uh, announcement on whether they will allow dividends and buybacks uh, at certain levels. I believe it's next Wednesday, um, um, June 30th. Um, before before we close, I want to quickly give a shout-out to our uh, Festival of Learning on Real Vision, which we, uh, we are on our second day of. I've mentioned my conversation with Peter Brandt, but Ash, you've been having conversations. Um, we have Mike Green, Kyle Bass, Daniel Kahneman, Josh Wolf, um, all sorts of fascinating people. and you know, That can be uh, seen in the link below. Um, guys, as we approach a close. I just want to pull up um, a tweet that I thought was very interesting. You alluded to it earlier, Samuel. And let me just uh, read this tweet. It's about the Roth IRA, which is, of course, a vehicle that people can use to uh, save money, um but you use it as a certain income cap. It's really for you know middle class savings, like one hundred and thirty nine thousand and and less. If you're a very wealthy person, you are not supposed to have a Roth IRA. But this came across the headlines. I want to get your reaction to it. So this tweet, Peter Thiel used fancy footwork to take a Roth IRA, which has a $6,000 annual limit, and spin it into $5 billion. Um, And then, that's a huge scandal, one expert told us. How greedy can you get? Uh, Guys, what do you make of this tweet? Sam, what do you go first?
2: Listen, we're all greedy. And at the end of the day, everybody, including the most liberal folks out there, like Warren Buffett, want to pay the least amount of tax possible. And the one word that's missing in that ProPublica report that I think maybe someone would like to see or think to see, think might be there is, is this illegal? And time and time again, when you see these tax reports, uh, when you see it from big, even investigated places like ProPublica, and it was perfectly legal, it may not be what it was intended for. But of course, everybody's looking to pay as little tax as possible. So the tax code has to catch up with those people. Again, that's why I think that so much of The uh, focus of people like Elizabeth Warren will be exactly on these types of issues and not the banks. Ash?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. Precisely right. Peter Thiel is a very careful thinker. I believe he's a Stanford Law graduate. Uh, I'm sure he's getting very good lawyering and very good advice. Uh, It really comes down to a moral and ethical question, I guess, which ultimately is a political question. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. I think that uh, Elizabeth Warren can go after both the bankers uh, and the big tech Mm. guys at the same time. So we'll have to see. I think the key characteristic of a Roth IRA, by the way, that makes them uh, generally appeal. Appealing to uh, middle-class savers is that generally uh, they are not taxed at the time of distribution. Uh, so I'm curious uh, about what the loophole uh, that Mr. Teal and his people found on that investment.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know if he contributed when he was not making so much money, or whether he had he had so much money but he wasn't reporting any income. Wink, wink. Um, but, what yeah, the roth IRA is you pay taxes on your income when you earn it in that year, but you don't pay taxes when you can withdraw it, just as you said. And if you think about that, that means that you get to compound as right. an investor completely tax free, which is kind of like playing you know a very hard video game on on cheap mode because you could if you use options and you're up one hundred percent, you pay taxes on none of that. And over the course of twenty years, that can
3: result in some serious, serious returns. so cool. um, if you yeah. pay at the time that the funds are committed, you're actually getting, you're actually paying taxes before it compounds. So one would think that that would be disadvantageous for long-term compounding. Uh, but again, uh, obviously, it depends on the exact mechanisms and how they were used in this particular case, which which we don't yet know. But it'll be an interesting one to follow.
1: Right. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Samuel Ash, thank you so much, and thank you to everyone who is watching at home. Uh, we will see you tomorrow where Ash hosts Rao on the daily briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lipson Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's libsyn dot